back in uh, November, Wayne sent me the cuts from the studio, and after I listened to it, I immediately emailed him, and I said, Wayne, that song is going to be the next Almighty. Almighty is the biggest song that uh, Wayne ever wrote. Churches and choirs have sung that song for about 12 years now, and I said, it's going to be your next one. And Actually, we're the first church to ever do it. Uh, the record just came out uh, the end of December, and uh, I asked Wayne if we could have permission, and Mark arranged it, and uh, so we're the first church to ever do it. Now, we're going to get to do it with a choir probably in about a week or so, and then it's really going to blow the back wall out. And uh, I love that song. I told Mark this morning when we were meeting before all the staff came in, I said, you know, I said, I wake up with that song in my head every morning. And I said, if we can just get our church to wake up thinking every morning, Lord, glorify your name. What a difference it would make in the way we live that day. How we would act, how we would talk to people, how we would treat people. If, if every morning we just waked up and just said, Lord, glorify your name today. Just through me, in me, where I am, what I do, glorify your name. And I said, we're going to sing it until they can't get it out of their heads. This is going to be like it back in the 50s and 60s when they didn't have enough music to play on rock radio, so they just kept playing the same songs over and over again. And uh, we're going to sing this for a while because I want us to get it in our heads that that is what we're here for. We are here to glorify the name of God. And you know, the devil didn't want that to happen this morning. Do you understand that? And uh, I hope that you know that uh, when there are distractions in a worship service, a lot of times we just say, well, you know, just things happen. But sometimes, you, I don't look for a demon under every rock, but I want to tell you something. Sometimes the devil doesn't want things to happen, and especially he doesn't want a church to see and know the glory of God. And if it takes just us not being able to trace down something simple like what happened with the IMAX this morning, which after the fact we found out it was real simple. If it's just something like that, if it's just people getting up and moving around, whatever it is that the devil can use to distract people from hearing what God wants them to hear, he will use it. But aren't you glad that we're not dependent on technology like this light over here that keeps going on and off and drives me crazy. I'm going to cast a demon out of it in a minute if I don't <laughs> ask the guy that wired it to come up here and put his hand on it while I help him change the bulb. Uh, <clears throat> all right, Acts chapter 1. I, was, I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at it. It's been a great week for me to just be in the mountains and to study, and actually I plan to get through all of Acts chapter 1 tonight. And I just got overwhelmed with too much stuff, and so we're just going to go through chapter 8 uh, tonight, really maybe through chapter, through, uh, chapter 8, <laughs> through verse 8. Hello. And uh, verse 11, man, I wanted to stay in that snow. I just asked God to snow me in, but he didn't do it. So um, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. First account, I composed Theopolis about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had had the by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are now restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses." both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. There is more to the Christian life than most Christians are experiencing. There is more to the victorious life than most of us have 
captured and embraced. Lloyd Ogilvie in his book on Acts tells a story of talking to a senior adult man in his church. And he said to him, I've been in church all my life. I've served on committees. The one thing my church has never given me was a relationship with Christ that would make my life exciting. All I'm asked to do is usher, fold envelopes, and go on outings with other equally unfulfilled people. What a sad story. That someone could be in church all their life and say, the one thing my church never did for me, it never gave me an exciting life. What happened to the abundant life? What happened to the power and the victory and walking in victory that God promised? Either it's true or it's not. And if it's true, we ought to be living in it. If we're not, we ought to be asking why. Ray Stedman made a great statement. He said, whatever happens in the world happens as a result of something that is or is not happening in the church. We have a mass of books out right now on the 20th century, the 100 most influential people of the 20th century, the greatest events of the 20th century, the most uh, significant things, the most uh, significant sporting events and all those kind of things. Have you noticed that nowhere in those books they talk about a movement of God? That's because in America in the last 100 years there hasn't been a significant nationwide movement of God. And it's the first century that that's happened since the first. For the first time in history since the coming of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit, a major part of the world has not been impacted by the gospel. Oh, we go to church and we've got, you know, 40% of Americans say they go to church and, and we're in worse shape now than we were 30 years ago. The world's getting darker and darker and the churches are getting colder and colder. And we're relegated now in the news to a religious page or a moment or a section or a little box. There was a day in the history of the church when God was moving in awakenings and revivals since the invention of the printing press when in the New York Times and in the London paper the names of converts would be printed on the front page. The people that had been saved in church the previous day. Now nobody ever asks if anybody's been saved because they don't expect anybody to be saved. They don't expect lives to be changed. There was a day when they sold C.H. Spurgeon's sermons at the newsstand just like they sold the newspaper. And tens of thousands of copies of his sermons would be distributed every week in a slot at the newsstand just like the newspaper. We have become insignificant. The church has lost its power. We're not plugged in. That's what happened to the screens this morning. We just had a plug that was undone. And, and there's power there, but if you're not connected to the power, there's no light. And you have to be connected to the power. And we become disconnected from the power because either we've let somebody scare us off from wanting what God wants for our lives, or because we're indifferent and think that we don't really need it, that we can somehow function on our own. And so we have the book of Acts. And as I said uh, the last time, this is the transition book between the Gospels and Romans. It helps us to understand what God did in those early days of the church. We would not know what God had done were it not for the book of Acts. And here was a church who had nothing. They didn't have a building. In fact, when Peter preaches his next sermon in Acts chapter 3, he's going to be standing on the porch of Solomon's temple. Because they didn't say, you know, meet at the church because the church didn't have any place to meet. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have a television ministry. They weren't on radio. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have computers. They didn't have email. They didn't have inner office networking. How did they function? You know, I said something at the table today at lunch and about, you know, the IMAX being off and it was frustrating to me and I was trying to keep my head and everything that was going on and, you know, I noticed people were distracted and more worried about that and weren't singing and everything else. And Haley just spoke up and said, you know, I did without a cell phone for 15 years. <laughs> I 
You know what happens? We become so dependent on stuff that when the stuff isn't there, we think somehow God's not there. We think somehow God's not going to show up. Well, we can just check this one off. This one's over. Something went wrong. Well, that's life, folks. Things go wrong. And you learn to adjust and you learn to adapt. And, and this church had nothing. They had lost their leader. They were about to face the opposition of the religious establishment. They were about to go through the opposition of the Roman government. And yet, in one generation, they reached the known world. They impacted the world in one generation and they didn't have any... You know, they didn't have a famous celebrity to come give a testimony. They didn't have a converted athlete to stand up after the Super Bowl and say, I just want to first of all thank Jesus for this, us winning this ball game. You know, I always want to talk to the converted athlete that's on the other team that lost. You know, we've now so humanized God that God cares who wins ball games. Can I tell you something? He doesn't care. He cares how the Christians at those ball games act. And if they give a witness of him, but you know, I don't think we can, you know, I remember when I, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. When I was in 10th grade, I was in Dr. Smith's Sunday school class. Dr. Smith was a dentist in our church. And I'd never been called on to pray before in Sunday school. And it was the Sunday that the Jets were playing in the Super Bowl three. And I prayed and I, you know, I wasn't saved then. I was just a church member. Super Bowl three. Yeah, that's oh, I'm old. Smart Alec. <clears throat> and, and so, you know, I wasn't saved then. I was going to church, but I didn't know the Lord. And, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, Dr. Smith called on me to pray. So I said, Lord, thank you for today and help the Jets beat the Colts in the Super Bowl. They won. The Jets won. I don't think God did it because He heard my prayer. And we have all this stuff and all these things that are superficial. But when do we come back and plug into the power and first of all acknowledge that God is in charge of His church? It's not that we need all this stuff, but we need to acknowledge the fact that God's in charge of His church. It's His church. I will build my church. Not Simon Peter's church. Not the Pope's church. Not the Baptist church. Not the charismatic church, not the Episcopal church, the Catholic church. He said, I'll build my church. You know, there's a church within every church. I hope you understand, not everybody goes to church is saved. Does everybody understand that? I mean, there's a church within the church, and God has a church that He is building. And He is in charge. He started something on earth. All that Jesus began to do and teach, He appeared to the disciples for 40 days, and He gave them many convincing proofs. He ascended for 10 days before Pentecost, and He gave them a specific order. Wait. Now, I, I have read more church growth books than I care to ever read. And I've read everybody that's an authority on church growth and how to grow a church. Uh, I remember in, in Ada, we did a friend day. Everybody invite a friend. It was the lowest attendance of any day we had in the three years that I was, I mean, even Christmas. It was terrible. You know what? We had people say, I don't have a friend to invite to church, so I'm just not going to go myself. I mean, it was terrible. They, we went by the manual. We checked all the boxes. We did everything they told us to do. And I mean, it was dead as a hammer. I've read all those books. You know, I can't find one church growth book that says, the first chapter says, wait. They all say, you need to get busy doing this, and you need to do this, and you need to train these people to do this, and you need to go here, and you need to go there, and you need to get this, and you need to get that. Not one of them has a first chapter that says, first thing you need to do is wait. Before you go, wait. And this arrested me because I realize that what we've done is we bought the lie that says if we operate like a Fortune 500 company, then we'll get the results of a Fortune 500 company. Jesus did not come to build a Fortune 500 company. He came to build a body, a church. And it doesn't function like the world functions. They don't understand deacons. 
Just give me a guy who can do the job. Give me a guy who can do the job. Give me a guy. I don't care if he's got morals. I don't care if he's got ethics. I don't care if he's... I just want a guy to produce. Give me a guy that produce. We say, hey, if you're going to be a leader in this church, you need to have integrity. You need to have character. You need to be full of the Spirit. You need to have godly wisdom. Not just street smart, but godly wisdom. You see how different God runs His world than we run ours? God has a different set, and, and, and I shared with, with some staff members the other day, I said, you know, I just woke up with this thought as, I was, as I've been processing all of this in the book of Acts, and it's kind of been hitting me like a flood. So, you know, Jesus never called up Rome to find out how to build an empire. Because I want to tell you, if He'd have called up Rome, if He'd have called up Herod, and said, hey, you know, what, I'm trying to build a kingdom here. What do you think I'll do? Well, first thing you do is you've got to kill all your enemies. You know, make sure your enemies are taken care of. Get your, get your systems in place. Get your people in place. Make sure you got your backside covered. And, you know, you need to do all this. And then you, get it, you need to get a legion of soldiers out that can intimidate everybody because that will make people do whatever you want them to do. Jesus never consulted the world on how to build a kingdom. Why? Because His kingdom is not of this world. It's from heaven. It's the kingdom of God. He said, I'll build my church. I'm in charge. And if you read the first 14 verses of Acts, He gives the strategy and the secret. Wait. Receive. Go. It's that simple. We wait. We receive. And we go. God empowers us when we go. But if we try to go without His power, we're in trouble. Second thing, you need to respond to God's call. The apostles whom He had chosen. Now again, I, I would have never chosen these guys. I mean, who would have chosen Thomas? Every time you'd bring up an idea in staff meeting, Thomas would say, well, you know, I don't think we can do that. That, that sounds hard. I, I doubt if it's going to be successful. I, I think we ought to do something else. And Peter would be yelling at him, telling him to be quiet because he didn't know what he was talking about. And Matthew would be saying, you know, the offerings are down. We probably shouldn't try to do anything. I, I would have never chosen these people. As we'll read later, they were uneducated, unlearned men. They weren't rabbinically trained. And yet God chose them. And one of the mistakes we make, I think, when we look for the people that God can use, we look for people like the world looks for people. And God always uses the person that brings Him the most glory, not the one that looks the best. I remember Vance Havner saying, well, if you'd seen Vance Havner, uh, trust me, he had a face that would stop a bus. And, and I remember Vance Havner saying, God doesn't make too many good-looking preachers because we'd get enamored with the preachers. He uses people. Plain old common people. He said, well, boy, how could God use that person? Because that person's not caught up in themselves. They realize they're nothing without Christ. But with Christ, they're everything. And you respond to the call of God. You see, folks, our strengths are no help to God. God doesn't need our strengths. He needs our emptiness. He says, apart from me, you can do what? Uh, what? Absolutely nothing. Zero with a rim kicked off is the way Ron Dunn would have described it. Nothing. You are nothing. You can do nothing that benefits the kingdom of God apart from Him. Our strengths are no help to God. God calls and God touches and God's equips. And when God wants to do something, God doesn't put an ad in the paper or buy a billboard. God finds a person and He begins to use that person. Somebody who will respond to His call. Number three, you have to embrace the truth. Many convincing proofs is what it says. You know, the church is not a religious opinion society. I told somebody the other day, they asked me about a particular pastor that I was familiar with, and they said, you know, why, why is it that, you know, things are just in such bad shape over there? And I said, well, I'll tell you why. I said, this is how he leads. He licks his finger, and he puts it up and sees which way the wind is blowing in his church. And if this group is loud, he goes over here and appeases this group. 
And if this group gets loud, he tries to go over here and appease this group. And a leader never appeases people. A leader only pleases God. And as long as you're trying to check which way the wind's blowing to find out which way your church is going to go, you'll never have the kind of church God wants you to have. You see, there is a matter of embracing the truth. And now I want you to notice these proofs, these infallible, decisive proofs. And there were three of them. First of all, he appeared to them for 40 days. Now that word is an interesting word when it says the word appeared. The word is ophthalmalia. Anybody got an idea what we use that for? An ophthalmologist, which is a what? An eye doctor. The word ophthalmalia literally means Jesus eyeballed them. He just got right up and he eyeballed them so that there was no doubt, I'm appearing to you. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking about, I'm talking to you. And he appeared to them for 40 days. He eyeballed them in various places at various times in different situations. Jesus got eyeball to eyeball with them so there'd be no doubt. And they say, well, you know, boy, I, I must have been dreaming. The second thing he did is he spoke to them about the kingdom. He did not say, now you guys go make up whatever message you want to make up and I'll bless it. He spoke to them about the kingdom and he said there's two characteristics to this kingdom. First of all, it's spiritual. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. It's my Father's kingdom. It's my kingdom. Secondly, it's going to be a powerful kingdom. Verse 8, he uses the word dunamis, in which we get the word dynamite from, with explosive power. Not just to create dust and make a mess, but an explosive power that makes an impact on something. And so he, he comes down, and there. Are, let me just give you some references here, and then we're going to go to the third one. There are three keys to the message of the kingdom, and you need to just write the references down if you don't get the statements. Three keys to the message of the kingdom. First of all, our king has destroyed death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 26. Our king has destroyed death. What is it we're afraid of the most? Dying. Jesus has overcome it. He's destroyed it. Secondly, our king has destroyed the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I wish I could convince God's people that the devil is not equal with God in his power. He's not even close. Now, he wants us to believe he is, but he's not even close. 1 John 4, 4 says, My children, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That means that the Holy Spirit of God in any one individual believer is greater than he that is in the world, the devil. So Jesus, our King, has defeated death. He's defeated the devil. And thirdly, he's destroyed sin. Romans 6.6. 6. That's the kingdom. Our kingdom is a kingdom with a king who has defeated everything that could get in our way. That's why the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. Now, the third thing he did is he ate with them. It says he gathered with them, but literally that word gathered is the word for eating. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jesus was not a ghost. He was not an aberration. They saw him take food in his mouth and swallow it. Now, I have hope there because that was Jesus' resurrection body. And I thought about this while I was eating at Pancake Pantry this week. <laughs> Chocolate chip pancakes. And I thought, you know, if I can just eat in my resurrection body, I have a few places I'd like for the Lord to just transport on up to glory. <laughs> and I could just, you know, you could just eat and eat and just forget the cholesterol and the fat grams and everything else. And Jesus ate with them. He spent time with them. He gathered with them. He ate with them. And He was there in His resurrected body. Now, I find it interesting that no one in the book of Acts... Now, listen very carefully because this is an important apologetic point if you want one. No one in the book of Acts in those initial days in Jerusalem ever stood up and said in any sermon 
or at any healing or anything else that ever happened, when the resurrected life of Jesus Christ was presented to the world, no Jew, not the high priest, not the chief priest, not the elders, not the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, nobody ever stood up and said, wait a minute, that didn't happen. He's not been resurrected. Well, we found the body. We know somebody stole it. We've had our detectives on it. And listen, if they could have produced a body, they would have. But there was no body for them to produce because Jesus was gone by verse 8 of chapter 1. Now, let's look at the walking in the Spirit, which is a fourth thing. Wait for what the Father has promised. Now, I wouldn't have done that, folks. The first thing I would have done is gone to Kinko's or somewhere and made some copies of the Gospel of John and started handing them out on the street. You know, put up a crusade tent and started something. You know, I mean, I, I would have done something. I would have, you know, I'm a type A. I would have to go out and do something. But he, he said, no, you wait. You stick around. Why? Here's the reason why. You're not equipped until you're empowered. These disciples had information and facts and experiences, but they did not have power. And he said, you wait for the power. You're not going to build the kingdom of God on your experiences. You're going to build it on the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. And your effectiveness is going to be in direct proportion to the power of the Spirit flowing through you. Now there are three characteristics of walking in step with the Spirit and walking in this power. Number one, it wasn't religion, it was reality. The Old Testament is full of shadows and pictures. Uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now in the Old Testament, there are a lot of pictures and shadows and images of what the Spirit would be like. Just like there are pictures and shadows and images in the, the ceremonies and the sacrifices so we would understand Messiah when He came there are also pictures throughout the Old Testament that help us to see the Spirit when He comes. Aaron's rod that budded. The candlestick in the tabernacle. Ezekiel's river that flowed out from the throne. Joel chapter 2 and the promise of the coming of the Spirit. The oil that the widow poured out that never ran out. Those were all symbols and pictures of the Holy Spirit, He would be like oil that wouldn't run out. He would be like a river that flowed from the throne of God. He would be budding out in our lives. There's so many pictures that are there. And when you come to the New Testament, you see the last shadow, the last picture. John's baptism. He's the last of the prophets. And he comes and he says, I'm going to baptize you in water, but there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And John tells us, that because then Jesus comes to John chapter 14 and chapter 16 and he tells us what the person of the Holy Spirit is going to do and what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be about. And so a person comes to the Holy Spirit through Christ. And this picture has been painted all the way through. Now it was religion, not reality. They had all this symbolism. And now the symbolism was gone. Now they had the real thing. They had Christ, God in flesh. Now He's ascended up to heaven. Then they have the Holy Spirit who has come down. I will give you another comforter, one just like me. The Spirit is just like Jesus. The Spirit gives honor and glory to Jesus. It's a reality that the Spirit has come to live inside of us. We don't get saved and then wait on the Spirit. It's not a twofold experience. It's one. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of your salvation. Remember, Acts is a transitional book, which simply means that the events and experiences in Acts are not the way events would be as you read the rest of the development of the church in Paul's epistles. That's why you never build... There's a key point in theology, okay? You never build doctrine out of Acts. You check doctrine in Acts to see if it's developed in the New Testament epistles. So there's religion that becomes reality. Secondly, it wasn't a program, it was power. 
the disciples came to Jesus and said, now, uh, how's all this going to work out? What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? How are we going to be a part of it? When are you going to establish your, your kingdom? And Jesus said to them, basically, that's none of your business. It's none of your business what my timetable is. Your job is to be a walking manifestation of the power of the Spirit. And here's what happens to us. We, we always want to know what, and we always want to know why. I mean, don't, don't you, I mean, isn't that nature? Well, why? Why? Well, when? Hey, I'm going to come see you. When? Well, I don't know. A few days. Well, what day? Oh, Tuesday. What time? I mean, we, we want everything. We want to get our day planner out. We want to make sure we're ready for everything. That's not walking by faith. That's walking by what you know. And you have to walk by faith. There are two errors that we make when we talk about this power. One is, is that we would distort God's sovereignty by rejecting our responsibility. I'm supposed to wait. I'm supposed to listen. I'm supposed to obey. The second error that we would make is trying to do God's work in our strength. Just thinking, I've got my own power. I've got my own strength. I've got my own ability. Or to put our programs together and then ask God to bless it. You see, God doesn't bless machinery. He gives us a mandate. God doesn't put together programs. He calls a person. God is not looking for experiences. He's looking for people who want to be empowered. Jesus said the result of the baptism of the Spirit was witnessing with power. Now, 14 times in the book of Acts, you'll read the phrase, filled with the Spirit. And I think, I tried to check this and make sure, I think every one of those, if not every one, at least 12 of the 14, every one of those references to the filling of the Spirit are connected with either witnessing or preaching. Why did the Spirit come? To empower us to witness, to empower us to share our faith. Now, we know that's not the only reason He came, but that's why Jesus told the disciples He was coming. That's all they needed to know. I'm going to give you a power, and after you get that power, you go into all the world and share the gospel, because in my power, you'll be able to do that. Folks, we are not salesmen trying to sell a product. We are not recruiters trying to get people to join. We are witnesses of His life. We've been called to be His witnesses. He didn't say, I'll give you a power so everybody will look at your preachers and go, ooh and ah. I, I mean, some preachers, you know, God bless them, they want to be treated like royalty. You know, I, there's a difference between honoring the man of God and worshiping and exalting the man of God. A big difference. You need to understand that there's coming a day when either through death or through the second coming of Jesus Christ, that you're not going to have a choice anymore. You need to understand that now is accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. There comes a time when we have to decide to quit letting the enemy run things. And we stand in the power that God has given us. And we take that power to this world in and through our lives. Many of you have read the book about Todd Beamer written by his wife Lisa. And Todd Beamer has become famous and infamous, and out of 9-11, there has become a two-word phrase that has captured our attention. Let's roll. There comes a time when boys become men and girls become ladies and people do what's right, and they no longer say, the enemy's not flying this plane anymore. And if I go down with it, I'm going to go down taking charge. God put us in charge through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's roll. Let's go out there and do what God told us to do. Church, you're dismissed. Let's roll. Go tell somebody tonight that God loves them. God bless you.
religious channel. It won't be ours. He stayed in a $10,000 a night room. But he gets on TV and he asks for your money. And he even tells you you can use your credit card. So he can fly in his $3 million jet to stay in his $10,000 room so that when he goes to eat supper that night and somebody says, well, I like fish, he says to the maitre d', bring every fish on the menu to the table, whether we eat them or not. That sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus said, I don't have a place to lay my head. But old brother Benny has got a $10,000 bed to lay his in. You be careful, folks, who you listen to and who you heed and who you think is telling the truth because no preacher needs to stay in a $10,000 room. I don't care who he is. And he doesn't need six bodyguards with him 24 hours a day to protect him. Billy Graham doesn't travel with that much. When did he think he was that important? How sad it is that the church thinks that power is popularity and prestige and what we flaunt. Paul rebuked the church as carnal for following preachers. He said, you're carnal. Some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And some of them said, man, I'm so good, I'm of Christ. Be careful, folks. Not everything that glitters is God. And I intentionally said it that way just so you'd get it. I didn't say not everything that glitters is gold. I said not everything that glitters is God. And by the way, in a documented statement, that particular preacher said that he would raise somebody from the dead in 2002. Out of a casket, I might add, which means that the person has already been fixed up for the casket. The blood's been taken out. Everything's been changed. Out of a casket, I might say. Well, he didn't. You know what Deuteronomy says about that? It's a false prophet. Because if you're a true prophet, what you prophesy will come true. Now, don't get mad at me, but you better get concerned about you or your friends who swallow everything they hear from everybody they hear it from and say, well, it must be true because he's a preacher. Just be careful. Watch yourself. The same preacher said that there are nine members of the Trinity. I'm still trying to find that in the Bible. He said that women give birth out of their, used to give birth out of their sides. I'm still trying to find that. And the amazing thing is he keeps denying these things and the people that are following him around keep producing the videotapes and the sermons where he says it. There are a lot of false teachers out there in the name of God right now and they're not doing the Lord's work. Jesus didn't say that he would give us power to blow on the choir and make them all fall down. He said, I'll give you power to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. I don't care if you fall down on Sunday. I want to know if you're walking with God on Monday. I don't care if you're jumping up and down on Sunday. I want to know how straight you walk on Monday because that's the evidence of the Spirit-filled life. Well, I chase that rabbit.